those snapshots in time really pull together a narrative for clients that helps them understand like a microcosm of a deeper story that's going on for them. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Hello and welcome to Writers in Tech, a podcast brought to you by the UX Writing Hub, which is an online education platform for writers. Check out our weekly newsletter. It's fantastic. Today, I'm very excited because we have a very special guest, and she's a content strategist specialized in a very specific niche, which is the healthcare niche. Her name is Ahava Lebtag. By the way, I'm from Israel, so Ahava means uh, in Hebrew, love, and we say Ahava. So, hey, Ahava, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Val. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining the call. So you're being in content for the past 20 years, and I'd love to know, like, how did you get into content? Sure. So I always was a voracious reader and loved words, and I always wanted to be a writer. And my parents told me, don't become a writer because you'll never make any money. Mm -hmm. And I actually started off as a reporter and then actually at the Jerusalem Post. I lived in Israel for a while. And then I came back to the United States and worked in corporate communications for a while. And then I decided to get a master's in communications. I was fascinated by how the government communicated public policy with its constituents. And I worked for a while for a federal government agency writing to consumers about energy regulatory policy. So if you can write about that, you can write about anything. And I had a friend ask me if I would come freelance at a healthcare content job for her. And I went and did that. And I did one job for her and then another job for her and then Hopkins. And then before you knew it, I was really working heavily in healthcare. I had a life-threatening illness of my own, which made me very passionate about working in healthcare and really- Prior to your experience working in healthcare? Exactly at the same time, right wow. around the same time. And it really made me realize that I wanted to do great work for people who were suffering. And then we tried working in financial services and other industries, and I just never loved it as much as I loved healthcare. So I made the decision about three years ago to just focus on healthcare and really not try to take on any projects that have anything else to do with it. Because every time I sort of you know, went outside of healthcare, it just it wasn't as much fun. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it as much and neither did my team. And that's a fantastic niche. You know, you're, you're never going to run out of, you know, startups and companies and organizations that related to healthcare. Correct. Correct. But now I think we need to focus on health, not healthcare. So I'm hoping that more and more people start thinking about that aspect of what people need rather than just focusing on being reactive to a problem and instead being proactive for what, you know, health is. And I think the pandemic has exposed a lot of issues with science with people's understanding of health and healthcare. And I hope we're going to see a sea change. I've heard that you had some interesting projects lately because of like related to your content services. Would you like to share more info about that? Sure. So we really started off as a B2C company and really worked mostly in that space for the last, I would say, 10 years, basically. And then over the last five years, we've really moved a lot into B2B. But what we found that during the pandemic, there were a lot of healthcare technology companies who were working on things that were slow to take off. For example, telemedicine, 
you know, visiting doctors online. And now all of a sudden their software needs were huge demand. Or there was one client that we worked with that had an electronic medical passport, basically, where you could scan your ID card and all of your vaccinations would be listed there. And also background security checks. It was like a huge thing for human resources and you know, human capital planning, how do we hire people where we know that they're health safe, there's that they're, you know, safe to have employed at our hospitals and our institutions and our organizations. So it was really fascinating to sort of dive into this whole new marketplace that sprang up around what the needs were going to be in a post-pandemic society. And also B2B is just sort of really fascinating because it's so similar to B2C and so different than B2C. And so that was really fun. Now we're doing more government work and public policy, which is where my passion really was. And looking at B2G is just interesting and how the government communicates and where they walk into the same problems that different organizations walk into and how they're hampered by regulation. And it's just really fast. It's always fascinating to watch how you know, you want to do the right thing. You want to do the thing that's right for the audience, but yet so many different things get in the way. Politics, an un, a misunderstanding of data, ignoring data. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's sort of fascinating. That's amazing. And like, I know that you're doing projects like for healthcare providers, hospitals, governments, as you said, healthcare technology. So this is a very interesting niche. So people in the audience that want to understand, like, how does she do it? Like, What's your process is like when landing that kind of, you know, B2B healthcare client? What, how would you start? What would be your kind of a go-to process? So the first thing that I would tell anybody coming into this field is learn as much as you can about the field. Pay attention to the people that are writing about it. Get on Twitter or LinkedIn. Subscribe to newsletters about it. I think that paying attention to the standouts, the people that win awards, the the tech companies that are doing some really interesting things, go to conferences virtually or otherwise, and just really try to immerse yourself in what's happening. I read newsletters every day. I try to go to webinars, you know, at least once a week, if not every two weeks. I'm considered an expert in the field, and sometimes I listen to these webinars and I'm surprised at how much I don't know about different things. And I think that. The reason that we win business is because I know a lot about what's going on in the industry, and I'm also not afraid to say, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the answer is, but together we're going to find it. Or, you know, I'm going to be able to call somebody that I know that's an expert. Or, you know, sometimes marketing is an art and not a science, and we're going to have to be iterative and see what happens. And I think that that approach has really worked for growing a business. It's a certain amount of Yes, I know what I'm talking about, but I'm also humble enough to admit that this is a very challenging field. It's always changing. There's always new things to learn, which makes it exciting and wonderful and always perfect for people who have curiosity, but there are no guarantees. That's a great answer. I've read somewhere that you got some internet healthcare award at some point. Would you like to tell me more about that project? The innovative individuals in the Internet uh, Healthcare Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, that's what I read. So what, what is that exactly? Which project brought you to that kind of, you know, uh, to that place? It's not an Oscar. It's more of like a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's not just for one project. So mm -hmm. for me, what happened to me at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, I've done a lot of work in healthcare, and I think that the award was really about 
trying to push the field of content and healthcare along and really trying to be innovative and in thinking about content strategy and great writing for healthcare, really trying to pull out empathy, understanding that academic medical centers and hospitals have to appeal to people as patients, understanding that B2B companies still need to speak in plain language, even though their customers are experts in what they do or you know buyers in what they're looking for. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I looked around and I thought to myself, like, I can't be on the front lines. I can't go volunteer. You know, what can I do? And, you know, this is what we're experts in. We're experts in healthcare communications. And so we developed a lot of information for our community around communicating around COVID, plain language cheat sheets, how to think about communicating to people, ideas for content. And I think that that's really why last year I won the award, because I turned my mentality in terms of how am I going to win business to how am I going to serve my community? And that was a massive shift for me. Not that I didn't feel that way before, but it really became my focus. And I think that that's really the way I operate from now on is how can I make sure that my community is getting the best communications advice and expertise that we have that's, that's built on data, that's built on watching the way that consumers behave, both consumers in B2C, B2B, I don't care what marketplace you're in. And, you know, really understanding that that's our jobs, our job, if we really believe that we're helping people make the most important decisions of their lives in healthcare, we have to help the people who are responsible for those messages and that communication. And I think you mentioned before the fact that when it comes to like improving your process, when it comes to content development for healthcare, you have to follow newsletters, blogs, and specific people on Twitter. Is there like, yeah, like your go-to newsletter that you can recommend right now? So I have to be honest, in the UX writing field, I just look at the button list of who's going yep. to button and confab, and I sort of watch them and what they're doing. I like to follow, you know, like Jonathan Coleman on LinkedIn. I think he posts some interesting things. Christina has not been as active, I think, but sometimes she tweets interesting articles that I think, you know, are sort of fascinating. There's some new up and coming players. I don't know their names, but I recognize them when I see them. I love the Content Marketing Institute's newsletter. They have oh, a I love his podcast. Yes. They're they're great. Like they don't they don't always focus on content strategy. Sometimes it's content marketing, but I think there's a lot of great content strategy there. Unfortunately, I know a lot of content strategists and UX writers, you know, thumb their noses at the content marketing um, field, but I think that's a mistake. I think they hold a lot of critical knowledge that we can all learn from. SEO is changing rapidly. They're really focusing on user experience. You should follow Search Engine Land. They're thinking about that stuff. So those are sort of the people I turn to. Anne Handley has a fabulous newsletter on writing. She doesn't focus on user experience that much, but I think that a great user experience professional finds the user experience angle in everything that they read and consume about this stuff. Just because it doesn't have the label of UX doesn't mean it's not valuable to you on some level. And actually, I think true creativity comes from connecting things that don't always seem to have obvious connections. And that is what I look for. When I hire content strategists, what I'm looking for is, can you make connections between what you're seeing in your research, in your stakeholder interviews, in your auditing? you know, in your audience, you know, surveys and, and interviews that allows you to say, okay, this is how the puzzle fits together. And this is, I think, the best way to go about it. It's not even out of the box thinking. It's just, 
can you make the boxes fit together in a way that's best for the organization? So, you know, I, I, I think that whoever you follow, it doesn't have to say UX on it to be valuable to a UX professional. I agree. I agree 100%. To be honest, a lot of professionals are trying to avoid even the UX kind of term lately. So there's like a change and many people like title themselves as content designers in order to avoid like the UX writing aspects of it in order to, I don't know, to be honest, I'm doing a research about it right now, like to understand exactly. I think it's a respect. So I'll tell you what I think. I think it's a respect and money issue, right? Design always gets the money. It always gets the focus. And I always laugh about that because to me, design is a setting. Nobody goes to a digital property to look at the design. The design is only the functionality of how fast they can get to the content that they're looking for. And so I always compare it to an engagement ring. Like a setting is very lovely, but if the diamond's not there, nobody's paying that much attention to the ring or the stone, whatever you want to put in it. I know diamonds aren't as popular anymore. You can make them in the lab. So you make them in the lab. That's not a big component. So from my perspective, I think that that's why it's called content design now, because it's just a respect and money thing. You know, I'm going to get paid more money as a content designer than I am as a writer. And it's sort of an irony in our society that we don't respect the written word just as much as we respect the people who arrange the features within the product in order to get people to those words or to that content, video, whatever it may be. I agree. This, this is a very smart comment. And uh, we said about like the salary survey uh, for the exciting hub. And we even compared like titles to their salaries. And to be honest, to our surprise, by the way, content design and UX writing was the same. But I feel like we're going to see way more content designers soon because of this transition that you were talking about. Like people want to get recognition, get more money, because that's how you do it like with different companies these days. So it's interesting that you say that. I wonder if that's true at the executive level too. Uh, so it might be true at the practical level that UX writers and content designers have the same salaries. But I wonder if the, the head of a content design group makes the same as the head of a UX writing group. That's very smart. We, have, we definitely have the data. And I'd say that uh, the person with the highest salary the executive level was a content designer and it was like almost around 300k annually it was a lot of money oh sign me up <laughs> where can i get that job i'm not sure i'm qualified <laughs> <laughs> i'm really not i'm not qualified at all <laughs> but that was i could be wrong i could be totally wrong i mean but from what i've seen over the last let's see i've been going to confab for 10 years well so from my perspective, yeah, I've been at every Confab Central. and um, Good job over there with the brand traffic uh, people. Yeah, one of my favorite groups of people. So that's what I see. I see that, you know, content strategy was a very nebulous term. And, you know, when you look at that book, it was called content strategy for the web. We don't even think, you know, that's not, we could think about content strategy for product now. And it's not really even content strategy, it's content design. But it's also more complicated than that so there isn't really a good term that encompasses it and i think that that's really what we're looking for when we keep going over and over it again and again and i think it's sort of a useless community activity that we do but i guess that's what the community wants to do so good for them the board people are looking for their title you know my background is in ux design by the way so i must say that we had like the same kind of definition personal definition crisis, are we UX designers, UI designers, web designers, graphic designers, 
product designers, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's it's changed like every year, literally, since like 2015. Every year. I remember when they changed from web to product and like the first few conversations I had, I was like, wait, what are they talking about? <laughs> because product designer sounds really good, but nobody said it's necessarily a digital product design. So that's exactly. a bit confusing. No, right. When they talked about it, I was like, wait, are they like designing like consumer packaged goods now? Like what is going exactly, on? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So also, I tried to play with the name. Should we call ourselves maybe product writers? But I don't know. That sounds a bit weird. Anyway, but it's an interesting discussion. And uh, I guess we'll find, I, I wonder if like it's going to stay like the UX writing team versus the content design team or like everyone are going to be content designers. Either way, if it's going to be only about content design, we will have to rebrand because we are the UX writing hub. I actually think it, I think it should just be called writing and design but you know i understand why it's not yeah definitely uh, as you said i feel like just addressing it as writing just making people thinking about it as less great as design which is so weird because writing is designing and so on yes yes all right so i i wrote that down so search engine land and hand uh, adley and newsletter definitely i'm going to check it out jonathan coleman definitely i love I uh, actually flew to a, w- a workshop. Yeah, we don't know what he's going to do next. He won't tell us all, but uh, he's in Ireland just hanging out with his dog so and his wife. So we'll, we'll see I what lo- happens. I love his content so much. Give us a shout out. <laughs> please, please. I went, I actually flew to his workshop uh-huh. to Ireland just because I wanted to see him live. And that Isn't was, he amazing? He's so amazing. It was voice and tone kind of a workshop one day on Saturday. And I don't know, it was so humble and nice and kind and educating. And I learned a ton from this person. And I'm also looking forward to what he's going to do next as well. Yeah. I also love his content about like burnout and about like, it's okay to cry at your, you know, at your workplace. He's he's touching a very interesting kind of topics that nobody's talked about. So I think he's doing a great job. Yeah. I agree. I don't think people really realize, I don't know, you know, I've never really worked in any other field, but I think that what we do somehow pulls at our souls in a way that might be different than other jobs and careers. And maybe it's more a more sensitive lot because we're in sort of an art type of career, but I don't know. I just think, I just think sometimes I talk to the people who do what we do and they take it so seriously and they're so invested in it. And I don't necessarily find that other people are quite the same way or they're not as in touch with their feelings. I'm not sure. But I do think that there's a lot of conversation in this field in particular around your feelings within content strategy and UX, where I don't find as much in marketing. People are you know, so in touch with that or I just don't find that as much in, in that part of the, the, the field. So that's an interesting point. Uh, so. Okay, so the thing about UX and also great writing is to know how to put yourself in your reader's shoes. And in order to do that, you need to be like extremely empathic to your users. You need to feel them. You need to feel like them. And you need to be like this uh, empathetic creature. And that kind of personality trait that makes you a brilliant writer, in my opinion, also brings a lot of anxieties with it. And I'm talking about myself right now. Like, I know that I can speak with people on a very deep level, 
get them. But in the same time, I know that I can have crazy anxieties that's, you know, going to wake me up in the middle of the night and so on. Right. Well, the great writing that we do really addresses people's pain points. I'll give you an example from healthcare that I think is really addresses what we're talking about. And it's not necessarily in the writing, it's in the solving of the problem that the writing addresses. So when I first started my career, I was a freelancer for about six years. Aha Media Group didn't really become a company company until 2011. I was really just a solo, you know, printer or whatever they call it now. So I used to write for I had a big job at the Washington Cancer Institute and I was writing a radiology section and I sat in the radiation oncology waiting room and I watched patients and I talked to them and I noticed from talking to the stakeholders, the doctors and the radiation specialists and, you know, they have nuclear engineers that sort of plan the radiation that the first appointment is about four hours because you have to sort of lie there and they have to figure out how the best way to get the radiation beams to attack the tumor. And they were commenting to me, and I saw this in the waiting room, that people get very hungry and they get hangry. You know, that wasn't a phrase back then. But so I wrote on the website, you know, when I said what to expect during your appointment, I said, during the first appointment, you should bring snacks because the radiation room is far away from the cafeteria and you won't be able to get there during the appointment. And I connected the dots for people. It wasn't like bring a snack. It was like, bring a snack because you're not going to be able to go get a snack. And I went back a few months later for something else. And they were like, that was the best thing you ever wrote because that like changed everything about the waiting room. You know, to sit there and watch people who were there for radiation therapy, that was not fun. That pulled at me. But I was able to extract a very valuable piece of information that then was written into the content that really helped people. And, And I do think that, there's something here in what we're talking about, about how really great content developers, content producers, content strategists, UX writers, you know, all the titles. In order to really write well and create great content, you have to get inside people's pain, um, whatever that pain might be, whether it be like, how do I figure out whether shoes are right for me, this coffee table that I want to buy, this piece of software I need to get, this medical equipment, you know, these tests for COVID from a big pharmaceutical company, treatment for my cancer, whatever it is, it's a pain point for them at that moment. And to give them what they need, you have to be willing to get inside that anxious state that they're in. I'm trying to decide whether or not to buy a pair of shoes right now. And they look so uncomfortable, but they're so cute. And I'm just like, should I buy them? Should I not buy them? And like finding the return policy was difficult. And like, there were no reviews on the site. And like, it just, the experience was not fun. And I was like, okay, well, if the experience isn't fun, like, do I really want to pay hundreds of dollars for these shoes? I just think that that's, that's where we, we really get it wrong. Sometimes our our responsibility towards the consumer, we just can't break through all the walls we have to get through to make them feel comfortable in that online experience. This is amazing. And I loved all of the things that you just said right now, and I could definitely relate. So let's say that right now you need to do some kind of a content audit for this, you know, this online shoe uh, store. So what would be your, your first step? How would you address this kind of project? Well, the first thing that I would do is I would find out, I would try to look at their analytics at their drop-offs and I would try to find out from the people there, where do they find that they're hitting problems and what are the number one requests that are coming through from their emails and their call centers? 
And then I would try to, you know, create like a pain point matrix. Like where are we seeing the most? And then also you always have to think about the business problems. Like we might not be trying to solve for a woman who's trying to decide whether or not to buy a painful pair of shoes. They might be trying to solve for other things. So what can you pull out of the data that helps them solve that business problem? And can you shine light on something else that they don't even realize is the pain point? And sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. Most of the time you can, and they don't care, but whatever, that's okay. Somebody else may care eventually. And so, you know, that's what I would do. I would, I would go at it from that perspective. And, and then I would try to do some real user testing and figure out, you know, where is there a place to move the return policy button? Is there a place to put reviews? Is there a place to, you know, ask people? I mean, no, nobody ever wants to really respond to those things, but, you know, how can you help that buying experience feel more comfortable for people? If it's a pair of shoes that cost that much money, there should be a thing that says you can return these shoes for 90 days. Like it should be right there. And to have to hunt for it to me just shows a lack of understanding of what the consumer might be looking for. Now, this is Saks Fifth Avenue. So for them, they may have customers who drop $2,000 without caring about the return policy. They may not want people to return products. Like you have to find out what they're trying to accomplish. I once did a big content strategy with the number one co company in the world. Well, it was at the time. And I remember like one of their pillars was like, we're cheap. And they're like, and we want to stay cheap because that's why people love coming to shop with us. That's exactly the right kind of business approach to their content. Like, we don't want to read as expensive. We want the user experience to feel, not to feel cheap, but to show that the price is the most important thing. And so I think sort of like figuring out what the values of the company are and what they're trying to do and how far off that road they've gotten with how they present their content is the answer to how to help them. Amazing. I don't know if it's amazing. <laughs> Maybe Saxon will call me and I can do some fashion. <laughs> oh, listen, like the fact that you take from the customer support, like the main pain points and that you open the analytics, not many writers are data driven in that way. Not many well, writers. If, if you learned one thing about anything from this, it's that there's a triangle of decision-making. The first one is data. The second point is politics. And the third point is common sense. And if you can't give your clients a data point, a common sense point, and discuss with them the political implications of the decision, you're going to be hard pressed to get them to move forward. When clients say, well, this is what we think, my first response to them is, how do you know that? I don't care what you think. How do you know? Well, we just know. Okay, well, you know, there's a great line in Top Gun where you know, they're analyzing Maverick's performance with the MIG at the beginning. And, and he says, you know, he says to her, you know, this is just the way I fly or whatever. And she goes, well, that's a pretty big gamble with a $30 million plane lieutenant. And I always think that with my clients, it's like, all right, well, you can think it, but that's a pretty big gamble with a $3 million project. Like, okay, fine. Let's think it. No, you got to know. You have to know. And the that's the three things that can support that knowledge. One of the things I always tell my writers is writers make choices. So if I disagree with a choice that you made as a writer and I ask you why you made that choice and you come back at me and you say, well, I made the choice because the stakeholder said X and this was what the analytics showed. We're going to have a very different conversation than if you say to me, 
I made this choice because it made sense to me. That doesn't work for me. That's not rigor. And then you send them to do some homework about like the data and like, when you said like political implications, so I know huge corporations have like diplomacy in them and you know you have to, your champion and they must, you know, kind of be your leaders of your choices and they will have to promote it to like other. So how do you tackle that? Because it happens if you're like working full time or if you're a freelancer or anywhere you will find politics. So how do you tackle that? If I have a great relationship with a client, I'll say to them, how far do you want to fall on your sword for this? If I don't have such a good relationship with them, I'll say, you know, do you have a concept of what the political implications of this decision might be? Very often, sometimes people will just tell you, like, I can't do that because, you know, this person will say no or that person won't agree to it. Or, you know, they'll come back to you and they'll say our executives aren't happy because X. Sometimes we'll go talk to them. Or I'll give them talking points that create ammunition. Sometimes we'll create decks, you know, of executive summaries so that they have something to work off of. One of the things that's really helpful in healthcare is that very often stakeholders are academics and they're trained to value data. So I'll give you an example. This is something that I learned from Steph Hay, who's a content strategist. She works at Google now. She has something called a language board. So before we go in to interview stakeholders, we do SEO research on what their audience uses as a term and what the search volume is on that. And then we bring it to the stakeholder and we say, is this the term that you use within your community of practice, like doctors or, you know, stakeholders within B2B? And they'll say, no, we call it this. Let's take Can you give me a specific example? Right now. So blood pressure versus hypertension. Mm Mm-hmm arrhythmias versus, you know, superventricular tachycardia, you know, DIDA versus, you know, content engineering versus tech content technology, you know? And so we'll say to them, listen, this is what your audience is calling it. And this is how they find it. This is what you call it. Would you be okay with us calling the page what audiences call it? And then in the body copy saying, you know, Blood, high blood pressure, also referred to as hypertension. And when you bring them that data to support the fact that more people will find their content if we refer to it in the audience's vocabulary, they have a much harder time arguing than when you have no data. So those language boards are invaluable for making sure that that writing is going to help the business case of the business. Because you can write all the content that you want, but if people don't know to call it that, then they can't help themselves. Now, as a person becomes more educated in a topic, they are going to start to use more sophisticated terminology to search for that. And so you have to build deeper pages that speak to a more sophisticated audience. An audience can, a person, you could start off being uneducated about a topic and slowly become incredibly educated about it because you have to be. Let's say you're, you know, you're assigned to go buy a piece of software and you have to learn about all these things. You know, you have to learn about DITA or you have to learn about CMSs or, you know, that kind of thing. You have to figure out how that engineering works. You're going to start searching for more sophisticated terms. But in the beginning, your searches are going to be much broader and not as narrow. Writers need to understand that about their audiences, and they need to explain that to executives in a way that they understand. Amazing. You talked about like taking those terms and using different like tools and that to prove that like the audience actually using them. So I would guess like 
I would use like something like Google Trend. Is there like an example for another tool that you can recommend? For well, I think keyword finder, and, keyword finder and Moz are very helpful. I yes. think people also ask is very helpful. And I think delving into communities of practice are very helpful. So going to association websites, looking at other software technology. I, oh, we always ask clients who are your competitors looking at what they're doing with their language choices, trying to find message boards or Facebook groups or LinkedIn groups where people are talking. You can gather so much information now online about the way people talk about different things, finding the hashtags that are relevant to that topic. I, I just think there's, there's no reason why you can't find it. It's just not possible at this point. So that's what I would tell people to do and to just you know, I mean, it's a rabbit hole, Google Trends and Keyword Finder. You could literally spend your life there. And like, yeah, I love it. Wow. I, <laughs> four hours just went by and I'm hungry. But, but I think, so I always set a timer, like 20 minutes, because I'm like, I, you know, I need to remember that I have other things to do. Right. But, you know, I think that there's real value in spending some time in that empathy type of way, immersing yourself in the lives and the pain points of your audience. And, you know, you asked me for a specific example before you, Val, and I really think that that's part of what really helps stakeholders and executives understand things is saying to them, we found this example online. Your stakeholder said X. We spoke to patient and family services and they said Y. One of your clients that we spoke to in a double blind interview actually said X about your company, even though they didn't know that this is who they were talking to. Those snapshots in time really pull together a narrative for clients that helps them understand like a microcosm of a deeper story that's going on for them. And I, I think that that to me is the, the really, the really important thing is to, you know, stories sell, right? Facts right. are just facts, but stories really sell. Brilliant. All right. Uh, so thank you also for the recommendations for the different uh, tools and the way to persuade your ideas. We actually invited Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz, to be on the podcast. Yeah, so yeah. he's going to be in one of the yeah, <laughs> he's going to be in one of the episodes soon, which is cool. That's amazing. So Ahava, so many great tips over here, resources, tools, people to follow the the triangle, which I love that concept by the way, the data politics and common sense. That was a good call. And now it's time to ask the final question about how do you think we should name this episode? This is an open discussion, by the way. What about what snacks in a hospital waiting room have to do with content strategy? Wow, that's a good one. Maybe, so, okay, so I just love the idea of the triangle. So something like the three pillars of content strategy, it's like kind of engaging, kind of like, I, I want to click it, you know? I would actually call it the secret tool of content strategy. What is a decision triangle? Because to me, I always fall back on that decision triangle. And every time I say it to a client or a fellow practitioner, they're like, oh my gosh, that really helps me. It helps frame a conversation, right? Because you can keep going back to the data. You can keep going back to the politics. And at some point, it's like, what's the right thing to do here? You know, that's the common sense. And it's also the part of it that's like, okay, let's, tr like in the, you know, design is, Mike Montero says this, design is solving a problem within tight frameworks. So the question you have to ask yourself is, if the politics are the same and the need is the same, then how can we wiggle our way with the common sense? And that's where we can spend a lot of our conversation. And 
I think by surfacing the data and by having an honest conversation about the politics, the common sense sort of rises to the top. Brilliant. And if we listen, if we listen back to the episode, I think everything wraps up to that triangle that you were mentioning. So I feel like it's a, uh, you, you just uh, chose the best. content strategy. There you go. <laughs> Loved it. Loved it. Uh, Ava, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. And I'm looking forward to all of your talks. I saw that you have a speaking engagement soon, like at least three more this year. Yeah, I've got two speeches at healthcare conferences and one at Content Marketing World. I'm actually talking about what makes a great email healthcare newsletter. So if anybody listening has any examples, even what makes a great email newsletter, I would love to get them. You can reach me at ahamediagroup.com. And my email address is ahava at ahamediagroup.com. And then I'm also in the process of trying to figure out if I want to write a book called Real Words for Real People, How to Use Plain Language. And I'm looking for examples of where you took jargon and turned it into plain language or where you were faced with jargon and you tried to convince your executives how to turn it into language that made sense for your audience. So would love to see examples of that. Obviously, you'll get credit, but starting to think about that project and whether or not I want to climb the mountain of writing another book. So <laughs> oh, uh, that's a, a story for another episode, like how to write a book because it's something that I uh, and get other people to do that episode for you. I'm traumatized still. Margot Bloomstein, she's the best person. Yeah. She just wrote Trustworthy. It's a phenomenal book. She also wrote Content Strategy at Work. Get her to talk to you. She's phenomenal. I'm going to reach out to her for sure. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, about email newsletters, I have a few recommendations, probably like the common things, which be like the morning brew. Okay. Uh, which is an email list that was sold to the business insider by like $30 million. It's a daily newsletter. And it's like a business newsletter for millennials. It's like bite-sized. They have like catchy headlines. You have like this emoji of a coffee. You know, you know it's them yeah. every time. Yeah. You have another one named uh, The Hustle. It was sold to HubSpot lately. Undisclosed deal. People say it's like 20-something million dollars but also a successful newsletter about businesses and about building business. And yeah, what, from my personal experience, I have also a weekly newsletter and it's nothing like the Morning Brew that have like 50% operating for like 3 million readers. We have like way less people than that. But we noticed that emoji in the headline actually increase open rates, which is cool. Breaking it into sections, sending a survey once in a quarter, to understand if you and your audience are aligned and like that they like your stuff. For example, our audience said that they don't like the podcast as much inside of the newsletter. So instead of pushing it all the way to the top, we pushed it all the way to the bottom. And it's actually increased the amount of people that were interested in our newsletter. There so you go. Ask, Data, common sense, politics. <laughs> exactly. Always works, right? That's that's Always. a secret weapon. All right. So, uh, of course, reach out, Ahava. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. And hopefully we'll see you uh, in one of the conferences. Well, I'll be in Israel in December, so let's get together. Uh, all right. I didn't knew that, of course. If you uh, have a group, if you have a meetup, I'm more than happy to come and hang out. We're, of course, we have a lot of like UX writing and, and content groups over here. Um, and I'd love to, to meet in person, you know, just to, yeah, let's Good do time. it. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, deal. Okay, I'm remembering it. I'm going to write it in my calendar. 
All right. So thank you everyone for joining for another episode of Writers in Tech, uh, brought to you by the UX Writing Hub. My name is Yuval, the founder of the UX Writing Hub. Feel free to check our free UX Writing course on our website or our weekly newsletter or our blog. There is a lot of content that you can read over there that will let you and help you to get into the field. And that's about it. See you on the next episode. Bye.